I just start by sharing that I just realized that I'm sitting with Prashna Paramita behind me and Kuan Yin in front of me, which is really nice. <laughs> it's just like the mother of the Buddha is behind me and then compassion in front of me, so that maybe can fit my talk. Um, what I would like to talk about tonight is acceptance. And I would like to start tonight's talk to share a story with you, which I have heard here in Spirit Rock actually many years ago when I was sitting along retreat. And it's been a story that has stayed with me for quite a long time. So maybe some of you know it. Um, and it's the story about Jacob. It's probably not his right name. but um, And he's been a man who was a clinical psychologist and who had been meditating for over 20 years. And occasionally he would also give Dharma talks um, to local groups around the area where he lived. And Jacob was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. And when the disease progressed, he experienced times in which his mind would go totally blank. Sometimes in those times he didn't even have access to words or would become completely disoriented to where he was. One day he was scheduled to give a Dharma talk at one of the groups beforehand. He was feeling fine. But at the moment he sat down at this place, just in front of everyone, his mind went completely blank. He didn't know where he was or why he was there. But since he had been practicing mindfulness for a very long time, he just paused, and then he placed his palms together in front of him and slowly started naming out loud what he was experiencing. Afraid, afraid, embarrassed, confused, feeling like I'm failing, powerless, shaking, shaking, sense of dying, sinking, lost. And he did that for a couple of minutes until slowly, slowly his body started to relax. And then with that his mind grew calmer, which he also noted all along the way. And then slowly he would lift his head and look at everyone and then apologize. And just a lot of people hearing this really deeply felt moved. And when, even when I heard just the story, I felt so deeply moved. And one man expressed this really well when he said, No one has ever taught us like this. Your presence has been the deepest teaching. And for me, the story has, I think, stayed with me for so long because it's been such a reminder how important it is, or I feel, to actually really practice now. Because we never know what kind of conditions will come up. And to me it's very clear if the stress level, for whatever reason, just rises, I would probably just fall back on whatever I have conditioned. Whatever happens, I have just kind of um, dwelled on in my life. So I think it's always been a reminder for me, as best as I can, to actually try to cultivate good habits in a way. And I consider mindfulness one of that. 
And the other two aspects that I have really liked when I heard this story is that just this gesture of putting our palms together, it's such a gesture of respect and just really honoring what's happening and just open up to it. And when I heard that he was actually even naming it out loud, that added to me a further step where he was willing to actually express some of what was happening inside. I mean, we do the same, right? When we do the vipassana, we just name what's happening inside. But he was actually doing it out loud. And that is such a vulnerable spot to just really show others what's happening inside of us. And so to me, it's always been an example of, you know, being so honest in a way and so clear, even though he wasn't, you know, at the same time, um, just to share your experience with others in that very simple but very powerful way. And as the Buddha has said, what one frequently thinks about and ponders upon, that becomes the inclination of the mind. And that for me has always just sounded so true. I mean, it's just like what we frequently do, what we frequently think, what we frequently feel, that's just kind of where the mind will go more often. So it's just in a way training our mind, either in terms of mindfulness or in terms of you know, loving kindness, metta, compassion, that's just another way to train new habits that maybe we can draw on in those important moments. And I mean, towards the end, when death is coming, that for sure will be such an important moment. And the more maybe the mind can just fall back into those wholesome habits, I consider the better. You know, and that's just part of training. So I looked up in the dictionary what are actually the different definitions for acceptance. And the first one I found was acceptance was explained as the act of taking or receiving something offered. And then I looked a little bit further and then the next one was just kind of um, explaining it a little bit more by saying the act of taking or receiving something offered with approbation, satisfaction, or, I don't know if I pronounce it right, acquiescence. So that actually to me, adds a little bit more in terms of like the degree of acceptance yeah, on the side of the recipient, how much we can take it in. And the verb accepting was defined as willingly or readily dis- receiving. And you probably have noticed how often we use when we give instructions the word, the word receiving. You know, receive the sensations, receive the emotions, just notice what you're receiving. So that's part of just you know, bringing that quality of acceptance into the instructions. And Tara Bragg, who teaches in Washington, D.C., and who wrote the book Radical Acceptance, she defines it as recognizing the truth of this moment without resistance. So it's pretty simple what it is, but it's not so easily there, right? I mean... How often do we receive what's happening without resistance? Sometimes, but not so often. And a very simple way how you could put it is, body and mind are not tensing against any of what is. 
So it's just this total openness where things can come, move through, you know, leave, get stronger, become less. Just the flow of things happening. So maybe I pause here for a moment and without changing anything, just notice for a moment what's happening right now. What are you experiencing right now? Is it allowed to be here just as it is? Not trying to change anything, fix anything. Just sensing it. And if there's a little resistance, just sense the resistance. Is it more physical? Is it more in the mind? What's the attitude in the mind right now? So that's not something, you know, big, but it's something you can just also in those times in between, not just when you're sitting or when you're walking, but just in those in-between times, which I consider so important, just gently at times just check what's happening right now, what's there right now. Is it allowed to be there? And for me, in that sense, mindfulness and acceptance just really go together. And that also means that we don't have to accept this huge, big load all at once. It just means this moment, and then this moment. And can I accept what's in this moment? So, you know, it becomes little portions, and not this huge load we sometimes think. And Joseph Goldstein once has put it this way, if you're struggling, there's always something you're not accepting. And I have found that very true. <laughs> and so sometimes in my own practice, when I feel there's a lot of tension or, you know, very, you know, just tightening up, I just drop that question at times. What is it that's not being accepted right now? And just leave it open, see what happens. Not to search for anything, but just like gently to drop that question. And a couple of years ago, um, a colleague of mine, I'm not so much into cartoons, but she gave me this cartoon and I really liked it. I don't know, you probably can't see it um, from the back, but I tried to make a bigger copy. Um, It's those two bees, and they're in a bee I was called, what was it called? Honeycomb, is that the right word? And um, as you can see, they have, you know, all those six-sided wax cells, right? All around the bee comb. And one of them is looking at the map, you know, and has all those, you know, all the same looking um, six-sided... And it's, you know, studying very hardly. And then the subtitle is, Face it, Fred, you're lost. <laughs> and I really like that one. It's actually at my computer at work. But it's, and it's just, I mean, I think it resonated so much for me, but it, because it's just, it's so hard at times to admit 
that we are lost. As Trudy said this morning, you know, it's so hard sometimes to just allow that feeling lost feeling and to actually feel it because it doesn't feel very pleasant. You know, we so, like in my practice for such a long time, you know, I was just, I didn't know, but I was striving for clarity. You know, I just wanted things to be clear. I just wanted to know. And I had such an aha moment when Carol Wilson, she teaches here and she teaches at IMS, when she, I think it was in one of her talks, she used a term where she was saying, oh, feeling lost feels like this. And for me it was just like, ah, that's actually something I can feel. That's not something I need to get rid of to get again to something, but I can actually be with feeling lost. And, you know, feeling lost can come in many different ways. You know, it can't come in not knowing, or sometimes it feels cloudy or dizzy, or there's a vagueness or anxiety. And just to actually really allow all those different ways to be there. And one of my favorite kind of nodes has become knottedness. Like just to feel the knottedness inside at times. And just to allow that to be there. It's not pleasant, but it's manageable if it's allowed to be there. And um, for me it's also part of how hard it often is to actually really be honest with ourselves. I mean, we all have our ideas, how we want to be, how we think we should be, you know, all those pictures. And um, to really, you know, more and more become honest with the flaws and the mistakes we make and the shadow sides we have. And I read a story of the Dalai Lama, um, who has just a little different way to go about those things. And it's in the book of Sharon Salzberg, and it's, it's in one of the chapters, it's called The Mistake. A few years ago in Arizona, the Dalai Lama gave a week-long series of teaching on patience. Over 1,200 people attended the event. He was explicating a chapter on Shantideva's Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life, an 8th century text covering the entire path to enlightenment. Moving line by line through the manuscript, the Dalai Lama presented his commentary in Tibetan. And while it was being translated, he examined the upcoming lines he would speak on next. The the Dalai Lama's English is quite good. And at one point during a translation, he looked up from the manuscript and said to the translator, you're mistaken. That's not what I said. The disagreement that followed was about a matter of syntax, whether Shantideva, in establishing a point about patience, had said, she said to him, or he said to her. (laughs) The translator responded by saying, no, your holiness, I did not make a mistake. In fact, the text says, he said to her. Quite bold, huh? The Dalai Lama replied, no, it says, she said to him. (laughs) The translator again disagreed, and they discussed it back and forth for a while. He said to her, no, she said to him, and so on. The Dalai Lama then turned back the pages of the text until he got to the disputed section. He looked at it, then burst into loud laughter, saying mirthfully, ha, 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 oh, I made a mistake. (laughs) 
there he was, having been caught in an error in front of 1,200 people, <laughs> laughing uproariously about it. So that's something to go for, isn't it? <laughs> and I think being on retreat is just really such a great opportunity to practice this openness and honesty with ourselves. Because, you know, you don't have to engage too much with others. You don't have to be too relational outward. You can really draw your attention inward. And hopefully the container through the silence and the precepts is safe enough so that you really feel, you know, here you can let down some of those defenses all of us use when we're in daily life where we don't show so much what's going on inside. And just to really honestly observe what's happening inside. And to just kindly and softly and most accepting as possible, just open to all those sides of us we just don't like to look at so easily. But it's such a precious time to really do that work. And You know, at the same time, if you feel like there's resistance or pushing away or pulling or, you know, just really to be with that and just to really explore what's pushing like, what's pulling like, you know, what's not wanting like, what's wanting more like. (laughs) And just, just really see those patterns, see those habits. And... One aspect I have found in accepting is friendliness. You know, it's, it's part of the metta. It's just this very kind, soft opening. It's, um, yeah, just, mm, it's not strongly. But it's like, like I said when I did the instruction, it's like that little rain that just kind of falls and permeates everything. And when I was doing this talk, I was just you know, kind of searching through the internet. And I found this story by accident, which talks a lot to this, what does it mean to truly love someone? And it's called A Story of True Love and Acceptance. This is what true love is all about. It was a busy morning, approximately 8.30 a.m., when an elderly gentleman in his 80s arrived to have stitches removed from his thumb. He stated that he was in a hurry, He had an appointment at 9 o'clock a.m. I took his little signs and had him take a seat, knowing it would be over an hour before someone would be able to see him. I saw him look at his watch and decided, since I was not busy with another patient, I would evaluate his wound. On exam, it was well healed, so I talked to one of the doctors, got the needed supplies to remove his stitches and redress his wound. While taking care of his wound, we began to engage in conversation. I asked him if he had another doctor's appointment this morning since he was in such a hurry. The gentleman told me no, that he needed to go to the nursing home to eat breakfast with his wife. I then inquired to her health, and he told me that she had been there for a while and that she was a victim of Alzheimer's disease. As we talked, I asked if she would be upset if he was a bit late. He replied that she no longer knew who he was, that she had not recognized him since five years ago. 
I was surprised and I asked him, and you still go every morning even though she doesn't know who you are? He smiled and he patted my hand and said, she doesn't know me, but I still know who she is. I had to hold back tears as he left and I got goosebumps on my arm and thought, that is the kind of love I want in my life. True love is neither physical nor romantic. True love is an acceptance of all that is, has been, will be, or will not be. So how can we actually try to cultivate this acceptance? Um, And one important thing to remember when I talk about this is that it's not something we can make by will or force or control. Um, But as Philip has mentioned in his talk, you know, there is a way in which we can cultivate conditions for the likeliness of something to arise. So that's kind of what I want to talk about. So what could be those conditions we kind of can strengthen maybe so that more and more acceptance can just arise. And Tara Brack in her, in her book has outlined a three-step progress. First step is that we have an intention to open up and to be accepting what is present. And I have found in my practice that intentions are very powerful. I think we sometimes underestimate how powerful it is when we have an intention. And we really name that and we really put that out. One of my colleagues once said to us that a teacher told him that it's not just having that intention somewhere inward, that it's sometimes also very important to name it either out loud or inwardly, but just to really put words to that intention. Um, the second step is to soften around the experience of what is happening. If, if it's difficult, if it's unpleasant, just to let the awareness become very soft and receptive, as much as that is possible. And it's not so much in trying to soften, but it's more like a process of letting go, and in that letting go, the awareness can just soften a little bit. And there are a few things that might help, at least I have found in my practice, and you can see if they maybe are of any help for you. One is what um, Teja also talked about, is sometimes just to pay attention to soften the space behind the eye. Just to, like you also used to say, just to kind of let it drop a little bit. And that can just soften the visual and can soften that um, awareness around the eye. And sometimes I have also used just a little whisper that kind of says, yes, this too. Yes, this too, which can help. Sometimes I do this inwardly bowing. You know, I just kind of, okay, may this be there May I try to meet it with respect? Um, Sometimes I really drop in that question, what's the attitude in the mind right now? Because sometimes it's like 
that there is awareness or that there is mindfulness, but behind that awareness or mindfulness, there's just still some small little wanting or some small little, you know, not wanting, which is not seen so clearly because it's a little bit more like a coloring of the awareness or like, you know, a soft, you know, something in the awareness. And just sometimes by dropping that question, what's the attitude in the mind right now? Not to search for anything again, but just to drop that question. I've noticed, oh, something relaxes a little bit more, or something lets go a little bit more, or something opens a little bit more. It doesn't have to be strong, but just like little, little changes. And Ajahn Somedo's way of putting it is that he always says, okay, it's like this. Oh, anger. It's like this. And for me, this has always helped me in a way to make it a little less personal. Oh, this is anger. Anger feels like this. It's not my anger. It's just anger. Ah, how does anger feel? Ah, fear. How does fear actually feel? What kind of components is fear made of? Oh, shame. How does shame feel? Oh, pride. Yeah. How does pride feel? And so that way, to, for me at least, it kind of helped to take the eye a little bit more out of it and just kind of explore it as a state, as a feeling. And another possibility you can try is just to put a tiny little inward or outward smile towards the experience. Not in terms of to try to skip over it or to make it something other, but it's just kind of proven by modern scientific studies by now that when we're smiling that opens and relaxes something in our nervous system. It's just a very automatic response that when we smile, that kind of means that we don't need to, you know, freeze or fight or flight. Because, you know, when we smile, it kind of is a signal, okay, it's safe now, it's fine now, you know, I can just let go a little bit. So just just really that little movement of the muscles gives a tone towards the nervous system of, oh, you can relax now. So some, I mean, we, as I said, you can also just imagine it. Just a tiny, you know, little putting the ends of the lips up. So, and those are all just skillful means. And they're just meant to be used when you find them helpful. And, but you can use them to actually soften a little bit in what's happening. And from my own practice, I can tell you, you know, I've done a lot of focusing on focusing down and getting through, you know, and just, you know. And it's a different way of being with something. If it's more like, okay, can I open up to it? Can I receive it? You know. It doesn't always work right away, but just like having that intention to be a little bit more receptive over time. And that kind of leads into the third step, which she calls is surrendering. So just to really deeper and deeper and deeper surrender into what is. And um, it's just, to me, it's just like if you surrender, it's like to really let the process unfold as it unfolds. We don't have an agenda. The process can just unfold the way it wants to unfold. And that's very much against our usual conditioning, right? Because usually 
we know what we want and we fix it or we get it or we control it or we make it. And just to have that process kind of doing you more (laughs) than you do the process, it's a very different um, being, a, a very different kind of being, actually. And it's very much again, it's very much again this fight, flight, freezing um, conditioning we often have around things, especially when they're stressful. So that's different ways how we can actually cultivate conditions that maybe serve for more and more acceptance to come up. On the other hand, I find it really important to point out that accepting doesn't mean that we don't apply wise discernment. It's not passive. It's not just, okay, let everything come and, you know, roll over me and, you know, I'll be swept away. So, especially when there are very intensive, unpleasant experiences, physically or emotionally, and you can feel, you know, it's becoming too much, too intensive, too overwhelming, too much tightening, too much tensing, back off. There's no use in, you know, having the mind just become more and more tense. It's about balance. So at times when you can feel it's becoming too much, just back off, see if you can find a place in your body or in your mind or in the breathing. You know, you can use touching your hands and just really feel how your hands are touching or how your hands are touching your knees or when you're sitting, how the feet are touching the floor. Just find a place where it's more neutral, where it's maybe even pleasant, where you can rest the mind for a while so it can come back to balance. So mindfulness can become stronger again. And then when it's more balanced, more relaxed, more mindful, yeah, you can see, is the other still there? You know, you can you know, direct your attention back. But it, you know, it can be in a very balanced way. We don't have to stick with something to get through it if it just overwhelms us. So that's also part of the practice, to learn how to do that balance, to learn how to you know, just go back and forth, to manage when it's very intensive. And especially around traumatic experiences, I find it very important that we learn that balance, you know, that we really know how to ground, how to come back, you know, how to be here. And then only take it in the dosage, you know, that we can take. And that can be, you know, very little at times. And that's absolutely fine. You know, the process will have its own timing, will have its own way, will have its own, you know, opening. Not so much that we need to try to do that. And um, on the other hand, which goes kind of in that line, is that accepting also doesn't mean that we don't set boundaries. It's totally fine at times to say no. Inwardly, outwardly, you know, sometimes it's like we've seen a certain thought pattern come up, you know, a thousand times. We've explored it, we know it. And sometimes, like Trudy said, we can close the door and say, no, thank you, not right now. But, you know, acknowledging it, accepting that it's there, but we don't have to put all the attention there. And the same way, you know, if we're more outside, interacting, I have found 
it very important to first kind of accept what's going on, to maybe also look inside, you know, feel the anger I maybe sometimes feel or the fear, kind of explore it. And from that point, I then can make a decision what I want to say, how I want to act. But it doesn't mean that I don't do anything. I surely act at times. But just in first kind of accepting the whole situation, exploring the whole situation, I can make much better choices how to act if, you know, if I have enough awareness and mindfulness. You know, sometimes it's been out before <laughs> I've kind of noticed. And um, so that's also something I have always found really important in the same way also with compassion. And again, Sharon Salzberg has put it very beautifully when she, in her book, um, talked about how she was in India and she was kind of attacked when they were riding a rickshaw. And um, so, you know, someone was coming closer, the rickshaw was stopping, and she said, I thought, oh my God, this guy is going to drag me off and rape me. Then he's going to kill me and nobody's going to help me. My friend who was sitting with me in the rickshaw managed to push the drunken man away and urged the rickshaw driver to go on. So we escaped and got to the station. I was very shaken and upset when we, when we arrived in Bodh Gaya. I told Monindra, that was her teacher at the time, one of my, and one of my meditation teachers, what had happened. He looked at me and said, Oh, Sharon, with all the loving kindness in your heart, you should have taken your umbrella and hit that man over the head with it. <laughs> so compassion doesn't mean that it's always sweet and, you know, like sugar and, you know, acceptance. It's always sweet and nice. You know, we can be very firm. You know, teachers can be very firm, but in a very compassionate way. They're caring. So I even heard the Dalai Lama when I was in South Africa once saying to someone who was asking him about, you know, weapons and shooting and because there's a lot, you know, violence in South Africa, like, and how to handle that, you know. And, you know, he really wanted to be compassionate. And the Dalai Lama said, um, which I thought was really um, surprising in a way to me at that time, he said, well... If someone is going to kill someone else, I see it as a very compassionate act if you maybe shoot that person in the leg so he cannot kill someone else. Because that way, you know, you also prevent him from really creating really bad karma. And I thought it was just a whole different way of looking at things. So compassion can come in so many different ways. And I don't think you can tell by what someone is doing. Again, it kind of comes back to what's the intention behind. Like, from what kind of spot in the heart is someone acting? And it can be very firm, and the boundaries can be very clear. And I always love the definition of a Zen master, what enlightenment means. And he, when I heard it, he said, enlightenment is the appropriate response. And to me, that's just like to be so inclusive of the whole situation, to have that wide openness, acceptance to take in the whole situation. And then from that, you will find the appropriate response. So the last um, 
part I wanted to go a little bit deeper in that for me it's very connected with acceptance is trust. Um, and Trudy has also already started talking a little bit about that last night and this morning. And because for me this allowing what is there to be there and not to control and not to fix and you know not to change it's just really this willingness to let the process unfold and that actually is taking a lot of trust because it's like this jump into the unknown if we let the process unfold we don't know what's going to happen it will show itself and we are just trusting that if we allow the process to happen, it'll be fine in a way. You know, not always pleasurable, but like, you know, finding its way, balancing its way, you know, sorting itself out without having us to do it so much. And that takes a lot of trust. And on the other hand, at least in my experience, the more we practice and the more we kind of see the practice work, that's what's becoming more strong. The trust, the trust in the practice, the trust that this practice works. And um, Ajahn Shah has put it really beautiful when he described it this way. When I had been practicing for only two or three years, I could not trust myself. But after I had experienced much, I learned to trust my own heart. When you have this deep understanding, whatever occurs, you can let it occur, and all things will pass on and be quelled, you will reach a point where the heart tells itself what to do. It is constantly prodding, constantly mindful. Your only concern needs to be to continue contemplating. Isn't that beautiful? It's just, yeah. Once the heart starts to open, once the process is unfolding and there is a lot of trust, um, it has its own way. And it has its own way um, for each one of us, how that works, how that unfolds. So there's also not one way. And um, since I'm a therapist and I'm currently working with pain patients, like I'm chronically pain patients who have a lot of chronic pain, Um, I started using a lot of the acceptance and commitment therapy, which is especially kind of designed for um, patients who have chronically pain. And it brings in a lot of mindfulness, a lot of acceptance, and also commitment to your own values. That's kind of like what this therapy is a lot about. And they have two... Um, things I wanted to bring to you we kind of use like one is it's a little bit more kinesthetic maybe it's um, so I, I put it out there and you can try it afterwards um, you, we let patients just put their hands in here and then we kind of say okay so how do you get out of it well the first reaction is we do this right we just you know, try, and we like, well, that's not working. That's actually just, as you can see, that's making it stronger and stronger, and we get more and more caught in it. So they can try, and they can see, and then after a while, they're like, oh, yeah, if I kind of really give into it, if I be, you know, that at first, you know, it's a little bit uneasy, because you actually go deeper into it, right? Then you slowly, slowly, you can take your hands out. 
But it's so much again, again, against what we're used to, like how our first reaction is. And um, the other metaphor we often use is quicksand. And like the image of quicksand. And to do this talk, I actually looked up in the internet, what are the instructions that are given if you get into quicksand? (laughs) And they're pretty direct. So the first instruction is, if possible, avoid quicksand. (laughs) I would go with that. If you can't avoid it, avoid it. And then the second one, if you get into quicksand, first thing to do is drop everything. And it says, because your body is less dense than quicksand, you can fully sink you can't fully sink unless you panic and struggle too much, which will cause the sand to further liquefy, or because you're weighed down by something heavy. The third advice they give is relax. Relax. Quicksand usually isn't more than a couple feet deep. If you panic, you can sink further, but if you relax, your body's buoyancy will cause you to float. Fourth, breathe deeply. Not only will deep breathing help you remain calm, it will also make you more buoyant. Keep as much air in your lungs as possible. It is impossible to go under if your lungs are full of air. Fifth, get on your back. If you sink up to your hips or higher, bend backward. The more you spread out your weight, the harder it will be to sink. I mean, can you imagine? That takes a lot of trust. Float on your back while you slowly and carefully extricate your legs. Once your legs are free, you can inch yourself to safety by using your arms to slowly and smoothly propel yourself. If you're very near the edge of the quicksand, you can roll to the hard ground. Six. Take your time. (laughs) If you're stuck in quicksand, frantic movements will only hurt your cause. Whatever you do, do it slowly. Slow movements will prevent you from agitating the quicksand. The vibrations caused by rapid movements can turn otherwise relatively firm ground into more quicksand. More importantly, Quicksand can react unpredictably to your movements. And if you move slowly, you can more easily stop an adverse reaction by doing so. Avoid getting yourself stuck deeper. You are going to need to to be very patient. (laughs) Depending on how much quicksand is around you, it could take several minutes or even hours to slowly methodically get yourself out. And then the last one, get plenty of rest. (laughs) Other than panic, exhaustion is your worst enemy. Since it can take a long time to get yourself out of the quicksand, be sure to take breaks and just float on your back. (laughs) 
if you feel your muscles getting tired. That's interesting, isn't it? <laughs> and I think quite of it, you know, quite a lot of it also applies for meditation. And I read it the first time, I was like, whoa, those are some of our instructions. <laughs> so, I would like to end tonight's talk with a poem probably most of you know, but in one of our group meetings in the beginning, someone so beautifully said how it helped her, actually, when she reminded herself of that poem of Rumi. In a difficult situation, just to stay present and just to allow it to be there. And it's poems, um, it's the poem of Rumi, the guest house, as you probably all know. But it's just such a reminder to have that openness. And it's such a great metaphor to just, you know, we have the doors open, we welcome the guest. At times we can also say, okay, not right now. I know you're there. I, you know, welcome you later. I'm busy right now here. You know, that's all fine. The guest house. This being human is a guest house. Every morning a new arrival. A joy, a depression, a meanness. Some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all, even if there are a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house, empty of its furniture, still treat each guest honorably. He may be clearing you out for some new delight. The dark thought, the shame, the malice, Meet them at the door laughing and invite them in. Be grateful for whatever comes because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. So let's just sit with that for a minute. And just notice what is there just as it is. Thank you for your wakeful attention. <laughs>